Saying low, Apple Music. Everybody has a recognizable voice. Everybody. I mean, even if you sound like somebody else, it's different enough that it's your voice. You can have it. You can claim it. It's yours. No one can take it away. But then there are voices that are so recognizable that they become the reason. The reason why people make skits on Saturday Night Live. The reason why records are a hit because the backing vocals provided just added that extra flavor that made it all special. The reason why you go on to sing in a certain timbre in the first place. Michael McDonald has a voice that is a reason. It's a reason why so many people look back on those decades in the 70s and early 80s with fond memories despite all the upheaval that was going on. Because as a member of the Doobie Brothers and through his solo career, his voice is synonymous with laid-back America. And Michael McDonald has always kind of come across as a laid-back dude. But it was interesting to sit down and have a conversation with him on the interview series this week to realize that actually there's a huge amount of depth and complexity there. Of course there is. You can't sing like he sings, write songs like What a Fool Believes, which really is the most existential example of unrequited love probably ever recorded in popular music without being a deep human being. There's a lot of depth here. I hope you enjoy it. I'm not going to waste any time with another long-winded intro. This is my conversation with the legendary Michael McDonald. Hi, Michael. How are you? How you doing, man? It's such a weird song that to be such a massive hit. Like, if you think about the lyrics of that song, they are so deep. Like, do you remember where, where you were when you wrote What a Fool Believe? It was with Kenny, right? Or, or how that song came about? Because it is a deep, deep smash hit record. Oh, well, thank you. I, it's nice to say that. I, yeah, I do remember uh, where I was. The first verse, something I jotted down on an envelope, which is only significant because uh, I'll tell you the rest of the story. But, uh, on a flight from New York back to LA, I uh, just, just kind of popped in my head. And um, that, that, you know, kind of piano riff in the verse, and, and you know, the, the basically that bop, 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 that syncopated kind of lick was something I had been messing with for the better part of a year. And then I wrote that little bit of a lyric but until I got together with Kate. And, and honestly, um, he, was knocking at my door about the time I was kind of going through some ideas at the piano that I, I might play for him, you know. And I, when I played that one day, I thought, you know, this is kind of a strange kind of pop ditty. I don't know that I'd play that for Kenny, you know. And when I answered the door, he goes, you know, before we say anything, the, you were just playing something on the piano. I hear through the door, he goes, is that something new? And I said, well, yeah, I was actually thinking of playing that for you, but I wasn't sure. He goes, that's what I want to work on first. <laughs> so, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, he, you know, he heard it through the door. I might never have played it. It's one of the deepest lyrics ever created. You know, it's amazing. It, it really takes you in twists and turns and is a great example of what it is to write about the human experience, and especially in an unrequited way. Most unrequited songs are kind of like, you know, I found a love, you left me, it sucks. This one is far more existential than that. Uh, where were you flying when you wrote it on a napkin? I was coming on a direct flight from New York with plenty of time on my hand uh, to LA, uh, New York to LA. And I just, you know, it was just something I jotted down oddly in on this, and the only thing I had available, which was a little envelope. And um, the funny part about that story is uh, later on, after I had written the song, I, I had to leave on my piano a mess. You know, there was just song lyrics, unfinished lyrics, you name it, just piled on the piano all the time. And uh, our publicist at the time was David Guest. You probably know who David Guest is. Of course. 
he was our publicist that he told that he came to my house and I was piano working and he was talking to me about something and he looked down and he saw that jotting of that lyric. He goes, what is this? I said, oh, that's actually the, the original thought I had for Butterfly Blues and it had already been a Grammy song a winner by then and it was still on my piano. And uh, he goes, can I have this? And I said, sure. You did it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I did. Michael. I, had, I thought, wait, wait, wait. Would probably, you know, it would be a little messy, you know. So I gave him this envelope with the lyric down. It was about, oh, six, seven, eight years later. I'm in a hard rock cafe in Philadelphia, and I'm eating. And I look up, and behind my booth, there's this framed, you know, uh, you know, he had all the memorabilia all over the place, you know, in the, in the restaurant. <laughs> there's this framed little piece of paper. And I look, and I went, I recognize the doodling on it, you know. And I went, that's, I couldn't. Be, you know, and sure enough, it was that lyric I gave to him, and he had it framed or gave, sold it to Hard Rock Cafe. That is too funny. I can't believe yeah. it. You well, never, I, never I, give your publicist know. anything for free. They know exactly what to do. No, with it. no, no. Yeah, you know, he was, a, he was. A um, but uh, I say that with you know deference. But uh, anyway, I wrote a letter to uh, Hard Rock and uh, Corporation. I said, you know. If it's not too much to ask, I'd like to buy that piece because you know, I wrote the song with my friend Kenny Laws, and uh, I, I I regretted giving it away. And they sent it to me gratis. You know, oh, that's and, really uh, sweet. Framing on. That's really that's really what a crazy story. I mean, amazing to be able to dive into a story like that and 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 have it be attached to such a. I was going to say such a sweet time for you and for the band, but also it's a bittersweet time for you and the band because you had such big plans last year. I mean, it was all lined up just like everybody else. We all had plans, right? It all just kind of went in a different direction, but you still got to celebrate, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame side of things. And, you know, I've been looking forward to talking to you for so long as a, as a kid who was raised listening to your music as an artist, your songs as a songwriter and as a member of the Doobie Brothers. I never could figure out exactly how you felt about your time in the Doobie Brothers because it always just seemed to be a little bit muddy. And, and when you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it really cleared things up for me because you seemed so genuinely touched to be a part of the band's legacy. You know, was there some kind of like coming back to the purity of, of that experience in the last kind of couple of years for you? Well, you know, like, like all people, you know, any career that I, I've, been able, I've been blessed with, you know, is a result of, Opportunities other gave me you know, along the way. Uh, Alan Walter from Stewie Dan, Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, you know, people I met along the way, Jeff Beccaro, uh, who was the drummer for Steely Dan at the time, one of the drummers, and uh, all, all the people I met along the way, uh, and not, not the least of which were the Doobies and Pat Simmons uh, in his, uh, you know, generous nature, inviting me into the band and Ted Templeman. Uh, um, uh, skunk Baxter, uh, to say the very least, uh, but for him, I would have never even been offered the opportunity at all, you know. So, yeah, you know, it, it, we we did enjoy a, a real uh, solidarity and a friendship that that built over the years of traveling together. That, that's one of one of two things are going to happen with any band or marriage or whatever. Over the years, you're either going to come to really despise each other or or you're going to become really good friends. And, and in our case, uh, thankfully, it's really, uh, 
given all the things that happened along the way with the band and the differences of opinion about this or that, mm-hmm. we really held in, in high regard of mostly our friendship, you know, and that was what we valued the most out of that experience. And uh, so to, to get that award with those guys and, uh, was, you know, for me, it really meant a lot. Yeah, I wonder how challenging that was for you to join the band halfway through, you know, and to fill a role and ultimately play a part that was really necessary. Otherwise, the band would have been in a real state. You did the right thing, but ultimately it it ended up with you being a more permanent member of the band at the and somebody else wasn't in the band. And, and I just wondered, you know, looking back on it, like that must have been really, really confusing and conflicting in a way for you. Um, I think it was, you know, for us, it was in the sense that we never knew album to album what the direction was going to be. You know, I mean, I think prior to that coming up to that tom and pat were the two main contributors of all the real they had a certain spios between them and uh, a certain common idea of what the band's roots were and so uh, each album was a graduation of that you know uh, they developed the basic idea of the band and with us you know i kind of came into it with a couple of songs i had written over the years that i hadn't really thought much about then the next thing is that we have another album to do and we had no songs you know so every every album after that was up until they reformed in the 90s for us a real crapshoot in a way you know we were experimenting with any kind of uh, ideas we had musically that came up between us and everybody was a contributor i mean that was the one thing about the band it was truly a band in that sense uh of us who wrote compositions but how those compositions got arranged and how they uh ultimately wound up uh, arrangement wise and recording wise had everything to do with all the people involved too. it's fascinating to watch the way that you sort of spent the last 12 months figuring it out you know not just in terms of how the doobie brothers show up on an anniversary year when you can't go and be in front of your fans and be in front of the world and be in front of each other but also what you've been able to do with this home alone series with with one and two which is you know you really leaned into <laughs> the idea of just like look let me take it back to what it was in the beginning i guess right which is just me and a piano or a keyboard yeah, if you want to film it, we film it. You <laughs> know, that's how it goes. Yeah, it's it's that's a, a it's a terrifying experience for me <laughs> because a I mean I I've never really considered myself an accomplished piano player. Always one of those guys that I could play, get around in a couple of keys. You know, half the time I was singing songs that were out of my range only because. It was easier for me to play the song in that key, you know, vocally be damned, you know, I mean, I was going to sing it no matter what, but I was damned if I was going to have to transpose this thing, you know, and, and get comfortable with that. So more times than not, it was really the band that brought me along uh, with playing piano uh, as much as I uh, have been able to accomplish because of the need for that with, within the band. You know, I was always just kind of a singer songwriter, pluck out a tune at the piano or maybe write a song on guitar, both very for me you know Mm -hmm. yeah but it's funny because i don't know if you've ever heard this rumor perhaps you have but there's always been a rumor going around that the voice that you actually sing in when you're on stage and on record to some degree is 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 a construct that it's you it's you but it's not necessarily the voice that you would naturally have leaned into and that for some reason or another you found yourself singing this way because again it was a comfort zone or whatever have you ever heard that and i I wonder what your take on it was because you're one of the most iconic voices of all time and yet people just dissect it they dissect your singing voice. <laughs> well, I, you know, my singing voice developed mostly for me uh, in my from my experience of playing in nightclubs. You know, uh, being with top forty bands who did three or four or five sets sometimes a night, and just uh, having to develop some f- way of singing that would give me the stamina to last. You know, through a week of much less five sets a night, four sets a night, whatever. In these some of these nightclubs. 
situations. I, I found early on that, you know, when I sang in just my full, not only was my range a little bit limited, it was, it, it did a lot of physical damage, you know, horse a lot. And uh, after a few nights of singing, you know, screaming at the top of your lungs, which is basically rock singing 101, you know. Yeah. I found that I, I had very little to give by the end of the week. So I, I just kind of developed this head of singing, projecting and, and, and singing uh, with a certain timbre and uh, deliberateness. Uh, that I, And I kind of picked that up from a lot of the R&B records we played in top of in my uh, effort to uh, some of the solo artists at the time, you know. But uh, what, what it just kind of became something. I developed a little further because of the ease of it that it seemed to have uh, for me as a singer and uh, the, the the way it kind of preserved my my voice, you know, uh, so it could work more. And uh, then I found that uh, it became a certain value for me. I'm convinced that the reason I got hired to go on the road with Steely Dan was I could sing all the high parts, but sound like full voice, you know. Yeah. It was it was a falsetto, but it was a more of a head voice, kind of somewhere between pure falsetto and, and your natural voice. Donald loved that. He, he just felt that uh, that really brought something to all the background parts. That uh, uh, And I can guarantee you it was not my piano playing that got me. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's almost any musician on the planet would have walked into Steely Dan and said, I guarantee you it wasn't my playing that got me the job because it's Steely Dan. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing about that band, right? One of the weirdest, greatest bands of all time. And just in terms of their arrangement and their influences and what they were leaning into, and very jazz-focused, you know. It, I just think they're a jazz band to me who somehow found this really mainstream audience and this ability to put songs on the radio because that's the chemistry of it. In a strange way, does it feel like you kind of found your home the first time up? Like I know you've been on to have huge success with like on your own terms and with, with Doobie Brothers, but to me listening to you and your influences and what drives you, Steely Dan must've just felt like I'm home. I'm here. Well, it was, uh, it was just one of those wonderful moments where I, I got a job with what was literally my favorite band of at the time. You know? <laughs> uh, I hadn't, I hadn't loved the band that much since the Beatles. You know, I mean, I mean, since I was a much younger kid and, and I was really hit with the whole British invasion thing. And, uh, you know, for American kids, that was where they discovered blues music. And that's where they discovered most of the preeminent blues guitarists that I know, Robin Ford, people like that, that are, are of this this generation or my generation, maybe generation. They all the first blues they heard was John Mayall and people like that, you know, and for me, uh, most of the. My love of R&B came, uh, I, of course, uh, my early records I remember hearing as a young kid, like 10, 11 years old, was Ray Charles, Nat Cole, artists like that, uh, Etta James, when they would cross over, which was rare at American radio back then, because most real solid R&B music, I would say, if it was the best term, was not played on, on top 40 radio. It was uh, usually independently owned black stations that play traditional R&B and blues music. You know. But most kids growing up where I grew up, you know, never heard this. So all of a sudden we're listening to songs like by the Rolling Stones and Eric Burden and the Animals and, you know, people like that. And we're thinking they wrote this stuff. You know, <laughs> We had no idea that it was, uh, you know, uh, written by blues artists yeah. and, and or, uh, uh, Nina Simone, you know, yeah. of all people, artists that we just weren't, that, that didn't really get the airtime in America that they did uh, apparently uh, 
abroad, you know. When you joined Steely Dan and you talked about being, you know, it being the dream, that was the band, your favorite band of all time. You know, I, I haven't spoken to too many musicians who get that lottery ticket, get that ticket to the Wonka factory. If, if you can remember what it feels like when you actually realize that you're showing up for work and your dreams and your reality have, have collided. Well, it was a strange way that that came about. I, I remember I was in a lot of, uh, which we all did in LA at that time. We it was a kind of a, a moat around the record business that we all swam in, which was clubs, you know, and then we all did a lot of that, that kind of work, you know, and, uh, I had done a gig, uh, casual gigs too, you know, like, uh, it's like, uh, private parties, you know, uh, rich people's private parties or the movie studios were these big rap parties at the end of a, a year of shooting TV series or something. And those were good gigs to get, you know, um, they pay better than your typical club gig and all that. But on one of those gigs, I met Jeff Beccaro because I uh, filled in that night because uh, uh, literally I could not find anyone else. The sax player, it was only me and the sax player, and we were supposed to have put this band together long before now for a, a gig that was only like a week away, panicking. And I, uh, he says, well, I'll do it. I said, well, that's great, but that's you, the sax player, and a piano player. I what they had in mind, you know. And he goes, well, I know some guys, you know, they play sessions mostly. He goes, but they love to do this because they to come up and just jam, you know. I said, okay, I have time to rehearse. And he said, well, they don't rehearse. He goes, they'll just show up. You just key the songs in. And if they know the song at all, vaguely, they'll play it, you know. I said, well, you know, uh, that sounds good to me. And like I wasn't in any position to do anything else. And uh, so I met Jeff Picaro on this show, on this, this gig we did that night. I didn't talk for probably a year after that. In that meantime, that night, I remember him talking about an album he was working on that day, and it was Pretzelogic. And he was talking about this track and what a difficult time they had getting this track. And uh, apparently Donald beat him up pretty bad on it, you know, and, and I'm just listening to this, just mesmerized, because that was my favorite band, you know. And I was just going, well, how lucky is this guy uh, at his age to be working with Steely Dan, you know. Well, I talk about a promising career, you know. I was already feeling like the whole thing had passed me by, you know, but I was taking whatever gig I could. Uh, uh, and I'd heard another friend of mine talk about going to audition for Steely Dan, maybe almost as much as a year before that. And every time I heard that, I, I would just, you know, kind of get lost in what if, you know, boy, what, what an amazing opportunity that would be. So about a year later, Jeff Picaro was looking for me and a girl, I was uh, a friend of mine that I, I knew at the time, a bass player. Uh, she goes, hey, by the way, uh, Jeff Carl's looking for uh, his number. He wants you to call him. And so I called him, and he happened to be at rehearsal for this tour, for a Steely Dan tour. And he goes, hey, man, I'm glad you called. Because they're still looking for somebody to come down here right now. Just, you know, grab up your gear. Come on down. We're at Modern Music. We're rehearsing. Uh, I'll tell the guys. Uh, I, I mentioned you, and I told them that they should audition you. And he said, uh, so if you can get down here, man, you might, you know, you might get this gig, you know, I'm thinking, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I have been like, you know, a past on gigs that I practiced for, you know, that I really, I learned all their songs. I thought I really prepared my audition and I got booted. You know, So here I am I'm going down there. I hardly know the, any of these guys material. I'm just winging it. And, uh, but I wasn't going to pass it up. And I went down, showed up and unloaded my, whirly piano and i got in there and donald started showing me some vocals and he taught me the parts and 
he really liked the fact that I could sing all those high parts in, in, a, in a relatively full voice. And uh, the other singer they had was really good, Royce Jones. He was a great, great singer and uh, percussionist. So between the three of us, we had the backgrounds pretty much nailed. And Donald was ecstatic. He was really happy about that. He started showing me the chords to the songs, you know, so that I could play some miscellaneous keyboard parts that he would give me and play. And that began, uh, it, that audition turned into our first rehearsal. <laughs> the first every day after that, and, and then went on to tour pretty much uh, the globe uh, that next year. Uh, and then it was over. Then the band broke up. <laughs> Still, I mean, just wild. What an incredible story. I mean, to, to, to just be sitting there. It's just a great story of manifestation, you know, and, and I love that about life. I mean, do you believe in that side of things, Michael? Can you draw a correlation between your ambitions or your dreams or your passions or the things that spark your imagination and what ultimately comes to fruition? Can you trace a timeline through that? I, I, I think for me, uh, you can only speak for myself, that uh, most of what really has come my way as, in terms of opportunity has been anything but what I had planned, you know, and I always keep my mind open to that. You're looking for that door that's actually open, not the door you're staring at that's been closed for quite a while now, you know, uh, and, and, and as you're banging your head on, you know, and that's always been a real, uh, you know, cause I found that for me, most times it was, it was everything that was unplanned that presented opportunities that were meaningful for me at, later on, you know, but on the other hand, I think in some way, visualizing when you allow yourself to visualize them will come true you know uh, i remember as a kid when i was 11 years old you know kind of shuffling my feet down the street listening to ray charles you know kind of keeping rhythm with my feet just loving this guy i had no idea who who he was but i just loved the way he sang and i loved the records he made and and then when it's like the more i got to know him as a fan you know you know when i started to for his records, my aunt had for some all of his records and um, the Lee and all these great records that uh, uh, you know I kind of grew up on, and uh, I, I would find myself is you know visualizing well someday what if I could meet this guy you know what would that be like you know and uh, you know the fact that that actually happened in my life is, is amazing to me you know uh, the uh, you know what it would come about I don't think it was because I planned on it and I think as sure as I would have planned on it or had to uh, come up with some plan of how to actually make this happen, I would have blown it. I think there's something to that, right? I think that once you create a cere- make it a cerebral experience, you open up all the parts of the brain that, that start to analyze things and they pull it apart and it becomes something altogether different. When it's pure, when you feel it, when it's pure feeling, when it's like, wow, what I would give to have that experience. And you always imagine what it's like to meet Ray Charles. You're effectively reflecting Ray Charles back to Ray Charles. You're, you're reflecting a pure version of who he is, which is how he makes you feel back in that direction. And not to get too crazy and like hippy dippy about it. That's got to, it, there's an attraction to that. There just is. I just think you put yourself naturally on a road toward that experience. You just have to. I think you're right. I mean, I, I think in, in a way there's, there's a lot of danger in the foreconscious thought of something it's best to leave it alone after that yeah, yeah. <laughs> because if you're like me you'll wrestle it to the ground until it's just of no use to anyone <laughs> and uh and that's been the story of my life in terms of like any plans i made you know i mean when i came to la i came out here for a record deal and you know i i couldn't have done anything else wrong because i pretty much went down the list of things to do wrong until i 
completely, you know, blew the whole thing. But, you know, and that's okay. It's all a learning experience. I think that's the other part of that just thing is that things will happen when their time is, is, is right. You know, uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, longing for or not just that kind of opportunity that some of my friends had, you know, seemed to already be, I was not even being called for and i i remember being on i think it was my 25th birthday was the most depressing day of my life because i just felt like i'm five life has passed me by Mm -hmm. i haven't gotten a decent gig out here in l.a and these you know uh you know dive bars you know and uh those dive bars that uh and and those kind of gigs that were really uh i found my opportunities you know and uh I feel like I had much responsibility for anything that really happened to me opportunity wise, mm. other than I was just uh, of the mind to never say no. You know, I said yes to everything. <laughs> and uh, I probably still do. Fault, you know. Who was looking out for you at, around the age of 25? Who were the people that were succeeding and doing well and, 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 and that you were looking to and saying, good for you. We're friends. You're off to the races. I'm still here at 25. Who came back? Who looked out for you? Who were the people who were kind of saying, hey, look, you know, there's an opportunity here, there's an opportunity there, or keep your head up? Well, I would say the, uh, for me, just about everyone I, I, I worked with or met had some, some, something to do with my trajectory. But the two guys I remember the most, one was, was uh, producer Rick Gerard, uh, who brought me to California in the first place. You know, he, and trust me when I said I had no business being on the floor of these sessions. But he used me a lot of his recording sessions, you know, that were things other than than what he did with me as an artist. And it was such a learning experience for me. I learned so much about uh, just with other professional musicians, guys who really had the fin- and the uh, the things that I wasn't even aware existed. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I remember one time one uh, a great one of the great drummers. Uh, I don't know if it was Ron Hutt or Hal. Bl- it's a vague memory for me, but I remember in one of the first dates, I was feeling pretty good about it. We had done a couple takes, and we were going to do one more take of the song. And he leaned over to me and he said, Mike, he goes, uh, listen, uh, you want to watch on the tempo? He goes, it's uh, it's not a situation where the first one to the bridge gets the solo. Or, <laughs> you know, you want to kind of be with the rest of us when you get there, you know. <laughs> and and, I, and, I, and I, it was the first time I realized that there was this whole thing about really uh, having the same sense of time as everyone else in the room, you know. But uh, the two Jeffs, uh, Jeff Baxter, Jeff Beccaro, specifically, uh, it was Jeff Beccaro who called me for the Steel Dan audition. Uh, and we had only met at, at, on a gig. Um, we had crossed a couple times, but we didn't really meet. But uh, he uh, thought to call me all, all like a year later. And, and I, uh, I'm forever grateful for that. And uh, Jeff Baxter, who went on after the band, after uh, I was singing in the studio with there was a band to speak of, and they were determined to never tour again, you know, down the Walter. So I just went on to work with everyone from Elton John to the Doobie Brothers, you know. And he had kind of put the most at that time, at that point of the year, uh, with the Doobies. So when Tommy's uh, health arose, and they really had to, he had to, to get off the road. The band, you know, facing the repercussions of not finishing a whole year's worth of touring, uh, decided to try go on but they might need one guy to kind of come fill in and take some vocals and you know somebody who could sing a little lead vocal uh some could sing backgrounds and, and maybe a keyboard because they so many keyboard or they had billy Payne on so many of the records 
would be nice to have a keyboard player. Mm. They were, had no shortage of guitar players, you know, at that point. And Jeff uh, Baxter thought to call me, and and uh, for that, I will be forever grateful. Um, that wasn't even an audition. He just he told the idea to them uh, that I could do it, and uh, so I just flew arms and uh, we went right into rehearsals, finished out the tour. Was it like getting on a rocket ship? The whole that whole era of the Doobie Brothers, and I'm talking about the whole thing. I mean, right through minute by minute, and the success that you had. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, it was funny because uh, Dad was living in New Orleans at the time, and that's where I met the band. We rehearsed uh, at a place called uh, the Cannery or the uh, something. It was a it was like a factory district of New Orleans, and where we were, and it was a big vacant night. We decided decided to man, We literally had two days of rehearsal. And then we hit the road. So my dad drove up with me to report. You know, we didn't really got a chance to see much of each other because he had moved. He was living in New Orleans at that time. And I was living in California. And uh, so it was an opportunity to, to hook up with him. And we uh, drove up together, like I say. And I don't think either one of us was ready for just the size of the venue. We pulled up to the back. We're going, this must be the place. It's like a giant slang sauce. It was like this huge round or, or arena you know bigger than places i had played with dan you know uh, oh I, i'm pretty sure this is the place and then we walked around forever looking for a backstage door and we got in there and we we sound checked and uh had dinner and had all this catered food and you know it was, it was really quite an operation you know so uh by the time the gig came, you know, the place was packed. There were about 10,000 people or more. We walked on stage and uh, the drummer started the song. And uh, as the lights came up and the band walked out, this gigantic roar, you know, happened. And I looked at my dad and he looked at me like, wow, you know, what's what's this all about? And I realized in that moment, the last time he'd seen me play was at a bowling alley in Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Neither one of us was, was ready for this. And, and it was. It was like... Uh, being strapped to the front of a rocket and uh, shooting off into a whole nother chapter of my life, which was, was terribly exciting. I have to say that, that uh, and it was rife with all kinds of opportunities, good and bad, you know, uh, yeah. it wasn't long before I became a little complacent with the whole thing and thinking, well, here, this is what it's going to be like from now on. And uh, that that's uh, one thing life will teach you is nothing stays the same. Yeah. You know? Wherever you where you'll be there again. You know, it's one thing to be a part of a band at a moment when they need you, and and you and you can actually be an, an essential part of the band by by joining at any moment and providing that ascent, that, that really important part, you know, part of the musical chemistry. It's another thing to get into an album like Minute by Minute, start writing smashes, you know, start like literally like helping the band reach another level. What was that? So looking back on it now, and and a time to reflect on fifty years of the band and its and its totality. What was it like when you were making that record and and you realized your voice was kind of right at the forefront of the band and perhaps you knew that that album was going to be a success, perhaps you didn't, but what, what were your reflections like on that record? It was actually quite the opposite. Uh, but, you know, taking the streets seemed to happen so effortlessly, you know, because we didn't question much of anything and we didn't, we didn't have time to think about, well, what do we actually want? It was just whatever songs we had, we tried them, we recorded them and some of them seemed to work. Was, and we looked to Ted and uh, and I think to Patrick, too, to, for, you know, kind of what, what was the barometer between those two guys as to what was working and wasn't working. And, uh, but it, it seemed like the record was over before anybody had a chance to think about it. And, of course, it did, it did well. And um, we were all surprised. And 
no one less than me. And uh, but minute by minute, and then I think it was living on the fault line was the second one, and that was torturous because we really had no idea what we were doing. We just kind of were groping for some, whatever new musicality we could find uh, as a band. But minute by minute um, was uh, an interesting time. I remember when the, the album was done thinking I, I have no idea you know and my biggest fear at that point was that i was going to be the reason the band went into the toilet right you know, that i was going to be the, you know in the captain's seat or or, or i mean not not in the captain's seat but that but i yeah. was going to be one of the main reasons that the band here's the new guy they suck now <laughs> yeah yeah and boy they they suck you know and so i i played it for a friend somebody i trusted a crazy friend of mine but i did trust his his sense of especially pop music because he had worked at london records in you know in for years you know during the 60s that i i admired and i, I knew he knew music you know from an nr standpoint and uh we sat in a parking lot some some mall somewhere and i you know i said well stay right there i want i need to play you this i had the final mix <laughs> we sat in his car and listened to it really nice stereo that he had in his car and he just he was just quiet and he listened to the whole thing right at the last i stared straight ahead and finally when he turned to me he goes that's the biggest piece of shit i've heard in a long time and uh <laughs> and i you know what came out of my mouth yeah i was afraid of and I, I was wondering if that was, you know, I, I had my doubts about the record, you know. And he's going, yeah, because I don't know, man. He goes, that's, that, you know, I don't know what that is. You know? <laughs> and um, so, you know, it wasn't a few months later, this thing comes out, gets released officially. And apparently the A&R department had a meeting where they listened to the new release. And it was unanimously a thumbs down by everyone in the A&R department. <laughs> They just thought it was horrible. And Ted, God bless him, just, you know, wouldn't have it. And uh, he did, we're going with this. And the, the, the first single is The Fool Believed and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I remember manager calling me at one point, it was shortly after it was released. I can believe this. He goes, uh, this you know, thing just sold like 30 records, the first one. You know, it was after, when it came on the charts, it came on like below 100, pretty far down there and uh, wasn't a great first week, you know, uh, appearance. And by the second week, it, it was in mid charts. You know, it jumped all the way up to the mid top 40s. And, you know, we were like stunned, you know, and, uh, you know, it wasn't long after that we were we had toured that whole year, you know, and we could just kind of feel the momentum building with the record while we were out there. And um uh, at some point, we got to Japan. I don't know how this all comes in sequence, but it was towards the end of that year, we were exhausted, and we had a big argument. I mean, we loved each other, but we had our arguments at times. And, uh, we had some big argument backstage. I don't think we even knew what we were arguing about. But by that time, we were just tired, and we decided to break up. We decided, that's it. We're, we're, this, we're, it's over, you know. And um, we all went. It was the last gig of this and tour and we were going to be off after that for a while we just decided let's just call it you know and um me and one of the other guys went to hawaii just to get some rest r and r just kind of collect ourselves then we were going to go home and figure out what the hell we were going to do and while we were there all the record ted was calling us and managers going look the record just this week is number one the album is number one simultaneously and we would have counted you out a hundred times before now 
but you're going to break up now. No, <laughs> that's ridiculous. You know? <laughs> and so then, you know, we, we let it go for about a week. And then I think Pat called us uh, over there in Hawaii and he goes, look, I guess, uh, I guess the handwriting's on the wall. We should probably try to make an effort here to get out there and, and, and see what we can do with, as a band with this. And let's, let's start thinking about the next record or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, it's just like fate always intervenes, you know, in, in either a good or a bad way and, and, and had everything to do with our trajectory, you know, in the next year or so. And it's interesting when I take a look at the life, the timeline of life, if I just look at the numbers, right? Just the math, because I, I don't know what's going on in between the numbers. But the numbers say this to me. I'm tired, finally achieved some real success with this band, grateful for it. I'm about to get married. I'm going to lean into a whole new rhythm here and a new way of working and a new way of doing things. That's what the timeline says to me is that the, is it that around the time of, of starting a family in a relationship, which has continued to this day and on that that's when it went like, okay, let me take three, four years between albums. Let me get a different level of priorities. Am I on the right path? Yeah, it would appear that way. Uh, you know, uh, again, wasn't what, what I was thinking at the time. In fact, I don't think I would have ever quit the band except, uh, when Pat quit, it just didn't seem like the doobies anymore. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't feel like that what we, those of us who were left, even though some of the guys that played the doobies longer than I had, that, that, that original creative core of the band was, was gone. Pat had written music for the band since the beginning, you know, when Tom uh, left for health reasons and then decided to embark on solo career seemed possible uh, even logical that the band might continue to go on because there were still some enough of the original guys to warrant that to happen you know and those of us who were new were just new and and you know uh it had some function for this new entity but those guys were there pat finally uh kind of hung it up we we actually got together to rehearse i remember and we didn't get through one song and we all just kind of stopped and kind of looked around the room and you know i i think i it was me that spoke up and said you know guys i think that this isn't feel right you know and I, I don't think we're the doobie brothers anymore you know uh, i don't think the doobie brothers exist anymore and i think we need to kind of uh, accept that reality and uh, and and it was a big decision for all, all of us to make because there wasn't just the guys in the band. There was a, a close to thirty people employed by this corporation that it was their whole livelihood. So we were talking, you know, for people who had worked for this organization much longer than I did, you know, had been there since the beginning. And but uh, you know, I didn't feel any more prepared to the audiences it wouldn't have been fair for us to get up there and, and pretend to be the doobie brothers you know those audiences that had come out every year to see this band and some entity of this band or some you know nucleus of this band that still existed weren't going to get what they had come out for you know i didn't think with us you know so and it makes a long story short i, I don't think I, the band as much as the band just kind of just just you know just ended and uh when they got back together, it was in the 90s, and I think rightfully they got back together as, as close to the original band as they could could put it together with Michael Hasek and Tyran was in the band at that point. Um, I believe John McPhee stayed on with them at that point, and Keith, Keith Knudsen. So that was, you know, there was always that, that those moments of time when you had to make those tough decisions, of, you know, 
what what what's the best configuration here for music we hope to make going forward you know and uh so we all understood that and, and i understood that you know uh uh, was there some part of me that felt left out of maybe, you know, but, but not when I thought about it, you know, not when I gave it a couple minutes worth of thought and realized, you know, this is, this is what the, these guys are, are hoping to, you know, kind of regain their roots as a band and, and uh, you, you can't fault that. But I remember it being, there being a real sense of disbelief amongst others. And, and I respect every part of that, but from outside the unit, there was a sense of disbelief when that happened. I remember of people saying, <laughs> That's great you're bringing the band back together. There's an essential element of the band that whether he joined five, six years after Inception or not, who's been instrumental in writing some of the biggest songs of the band's career and whose voice is still synonymous now with the band's legacy. And it, it didn't make a lot of sense to everybody. It's amazing to hear that you were very holistic, that you were sort of holistic about it because a lot of people were very shocked that there wasn't a Michael McDonald Doobie Brothers reunion. I knew it wasn't personal. You know, I knew it wasn't uh, anybody's. You know, uh, and, and believe me, those guys had forgiven had forgiven a lot of my neuroses. You know, over the years, and I think the more I felt like the guy that might bomb out the Doobie Brothers, you know, uh, almost the more impossible I got to live with. You know, got to be to live with. You know, so but we were all friends, and and everybody kind of knew where I was coming from, even when I I I, I knew the turf. You know, I knew how these decisions are made, and I knew that. Um, it was like with Donald and Walter. They disbanded. There was, of course, a lot of hurt feelings. Those guys had been there since the beginning. You know, uh, they had made all the records. With it. But who, you know, who can argue? You know, when you look back, that this whole other season of Steely Dan, all these iconic songs that came later, probably would not have come had they stayed in that situation. Had they continued to record as that unit, it really took Walter and Donald freeing themselves of that. And I think everybody involved understood that, you know, because then they, they were free to go on and pursue these recordings in a whole other way. So, uh, and write the songs they probably wouldn't have written for the band as that entity, uh, the entity that it was up to that point. Yeah. So, you know, these things kind of happen and you try to be philosophical about yeah. it. It's easy to be philosophical when you've been able to go out and, and this is where I get back to my poorly placed timeline assumption. But when you've been able to get back to a place where you've actually, you can start a family and have a solo career and start to actually carve your own path, right? I mean, I think it would have been much harder, I'm sure, if you hadn't had such so many good things going on in your life after the Doobie Brothers, at least it's the way it seemed, you know, you were writing great songs, collaborating with incredible artists, like I said, starting a family. Yeah, no, it was one. It's all, but looking back, it was uh, a blessing, guys, because at the time, what I felt was, oh, now I'm, I've been flushed out here and <laughs> I'm out in the open. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure I am a solo artist, you know. I mean, I don't know. I, I've written 12 good songs for an album. Uh, and, uh, you know, so then that became a whole other trial for me, you know, of fire and. And I couldn't seem, I was very, uh, the first record I had some, some singles from that and some songs that became well-known through FM radio, big singles, but uh, Keep Forgetting was a big single. Then I had that I had great love project, the one that I did with Patty and uh, the uh, Sweet Freedom project, you know. So those things were very sustaining to me as a solo artist. But, you know, I, I couldn't get arrested on the touring thing. You know, there was no promoters that really felt like I would be a draw. And I hadn't broken into that yet. So I really was trying to get over to uh, 
to Europe and maybe just open for somebody in Europe so I could kind of get my my thing together a little bit with the band and and maybe play in front of some large audiences and and then by the time I came back to the United States I would have something to point to like well, hey well we toured with so and so in Europe and we did did okay and what what did wind up happening was I I couldn't get arrested as I said and uh, I wound up being home a lot more than I had planned and my son was born and so looking back I, I'm really grateful. You know, looking back, I I realized that uh, I probably would have, uh, you know, forced myself into a bind where I was really feeling the pressure of being out there. Or had I been successful with it, or, or if I even had that opportunity, I would have playing it, been playing it for all it was worth, and I would have really missed out on a lot of important time with my son when he was a baby, and it probably burned myself out because I really wasn't. It wasn't until later, and I had done it for a while, a few different bands that I realized that I'd kind of found my, which was not trying to be a big rock show, but just go out there with a good, a good band and, and play the music the best we could, you know, and uh, we never had a, a, a big production value kind of performance. We just really were always a, a band uh, performing my material. You know, but uh, we always operated as a band and, and, and I always depended on guys uh, that were with me at the time for that might be, the show for me, you know, as, as good as we could be as a band was as good as a show. Yeah. Yeah. But I think also as a voice and a writer, Michael, you know, you've been able to live such a rich life of collaboration as well. And you seem to be just so open to things and, and, you know, your sense of humor now is really well, it's, it's very established, you know, working with South Park, getting in on the jokes, doing the Jimmy Fallon <laughs> and the Justin Timberlake thing, you know, I mean, even right back in the beginning with the Rick Moranis version of the Christopher Cross, which is just still to this day, hilarious skit of you trying to race into the studio at <laughs> a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> the best bit is when, you, when, when he says, when you, him as you is disputing the paperwork and then you still make it into do the BV just cracks me up every time. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It was fun. And not far from the truth, you know, uh, down to the car. I actually used to have a car that looked like that. (laughs) uh, I mean, you think about the collaborations you've done and in recent times, you know, I think about someone who I'm incredibly fond of and I'm proud to call a friend, you know, Thundercat, who's just a beautiful human being, like just a spiritually beautiful human being. And and, and I, I love the collaboration that you and Kenny did with him. How was that experience for you working with someone like Thundercat, such a genius? Oh, it was a wonderful opportunity. For Kenny and I both, and I, and all credit to Kenny for that because uh, it was Kenny's son who had heard the interview where Steve Bruner, Thundercat, mentioned Kenny and I as influences, and so his son calls him and goes, "You know, you should call Thundercat. This guy is he is so cool. You know, and his music is so great. You guys should write with him." He's he mentioned you in his interview, and so Kenny really took the initiative and called me. He goes, "You know, I'm going to try and set something up. Are you in?" I said, "Absolutely." You know. So we met with Steve at a little studio in Ojai, which is some little town back in the mountains between L.A. and Santa Barbara. We spent the day kind of just going over uh, songs he had already started. And uh, Steve being creative, there were creative, there were plenty of them, you know. But somehow that that uh, that, that one tune uh, really got my ear and then uh, Kenny's too. So we, we kind of did that one. One, and then we all began to collaborate. And then we kind of went our separate ways with our assignments, if you will. You know, you write the second verse or you write the third verse. And now that we all have a, what the song's about. And uh, oh, it, it, it really worked out beautifully, uh, the way it worked out. 
the uh, finishing a lot of it here in Santa Barbara. Uh, and it was a very uh, ground level thing. I mean, we, we recorded a lot of it at a buddy of mine's house who lives not far from me in Santa Barbara, his studio in his backyard. So it was it was interesting uh, how the whole project came together. And most of the, like, I think Steve, he he's probably writing a song when he's sitting in an airport yeah. computer. You know? Yeah. And he's just, this whole new age of technology. He's, he's right there with all that, you know. Uh, I barely know how to answer my phone. You know? <laughs> I know, because it took us three days to find you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Where do you find yourself creatively at this point in your life now? Having having covered a lot of ground and collaborated with a lot of people and had some and had great success and you know your family and everything healthy and well. Where do you find yourself now? Well, you know, a friend of mine put it really well. This pandemic thing has really kind of thrown us all a curve. We're also used to like doing the same thing, different day, same stuff. Yeah, you know? but uh, all of a sudden we had to kind of think our way out of it a little bit and. Um, he said that, and he goes, you know, I've got Jack to do, and I can't get it done. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of how everybody feels. Like, I really don't have that much to do that I couldn't get done easily and at home at that, you know. But I can't seem to get any of it done, you know. And, and that's kind of how I feel. I, I, I was writing a bit just before the pandemic came with a guy I've always wanted to write with, Jack Tempson, down in, in uh, uh, you know, around Costa Mesa down that way. And, um he and I were probably wrote three songs. I have yet to demo them this, this whole year because I just haven't been able to get to them with all the, I, we, we, you know, everybody's doing a, a COVID relief song of something, some form, fashion, and it's all great. I think the only one I haven't done yet is the Rodeo Clowns of America. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't done a COVID song for them, but everyone else, uh, uh, we've covered some kind of, a, you know, a, you won't be getting your Christmas card from the Rodeo Clowns of America next year, this year, Michael. <laughs> no, FYI. I guess not. You know, we'll probably get around to that one before the pandemic's over. But you know, uh, but anyway, yeah, you know. So it seems like there's been so many things that just kind of come up and, and take precedence over all the things we we all swore we were going to do. You know, but uh, I, I, like I said, I'm glad to be busy, and I hopefully get back to writing a little bit more. Um, I'd like to get some stuff demoed and and some songs written just in case. God forbid I do another record. You, know, you um, got it. I, I actually have a record. Fin I'm finishing right now, but that was totally an accidental project actually that uh, we did that kind of started off as reinventing uh, some of the older tracks I had cut with Doobies. And, uh, and, and I, I can only let it speak if it ever comes out. But uh, And I don't even really know anymore how records come up. I, it's, a, it's a different business you know, than uh, not with a label or anything. So we're just going to put this thing out. It is, it is, but it isn't, you know, it's the same as minute by minute. You know, you're still going to play it to someone you trust. They're probably going to tell you it's an awful piece of shit. You're still going to put it out because you trust your instincts and people exactly. will find it and love it. I mean, it's kind of the same. It's just a different tool. No, that's true. I, I think I'll take that as a, as a good sign. Now. <laughs> In an ideal world, you will see the touring, the, the idea of being able to get back on stage with the Doobie brothers through. I mean, you know, it's been, you know, a long time coming. Yeah, we're looking forward to actually getting out there at some point this coming year and and playing because uh, you know for me the few times I I I, I stayed you know in touch with the band and everybody for years all those years we all remained friends. In fact, Pat and I were neighbors in Hawaii uh, for a good portion of that time. You know, they still are you know vaguely speaking. I don't spend that much time there anymore. But when I was living 
there, and, and, and we, 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 you know, we were not that far from each other. We saw each other a lot, and we watched kids grow up, you know, uh, our, his line. And so, but, you know, in the meantime, every once in a while, I would band, you know, uh, for a special event or a charity event or something. It always felt like home. You know, I always felt good to me, you know. And uh, it was even more fun because Tom was involved in, in those gigs, you know. And uh, so I always felt like the band was that that, that great cross-representation of everything that he said ever been, you know. And, uh, and I always enjoyed the hang, you know. They're, they're all guys I, 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 I love a lot. Even the guys that are gone, you know, uh, it, it's a great way to almost stay in touch with, with them, you know, uh, because when we're back together, you, you, your mind goes back to all those years we all traveled. Yeah. You probably remember them and think of them in ways you, you wouldn't, but for the experience. And uh, uh, so uh, we all appreciate the, the opportunity and hope uh, we'll get to do it come next year who would be crazy enough to reach a milestone birthday and decide to perform live in front of the world for the second time on home alone you would you would do that (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure it's a good idea it's going to be great i mean are you excited about it i i I enjoy doing it you know uh it seems like a more intimate experience Uh, even though there's no one in the room uh, with the audience, in, in a way, I feel like it's the kind of show I would do if I were sitting in your living room and we decided to play some songs. You know, uh, it's just me, and and it's 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 actually forced me to do something I always promised myself I would do, which is could I do an hour's worth of music at the piano by myself? Yeah, and uh, I've gotten so far away from that that I wasn't sure that I could you know anymore. And when I moved to Nashville, I did these things that were which were just writers around sometimes people call it a guitar pole where the idea was to pass the guitar around and everybody do one of their songs so what i learned is that uh, i had to approach the song differently play them that way just me sitting at the piano but uh, so many times uh, a lot of what i came up with became arrangements i would use with the band later you know because i, I kind of liked the way the song spelled you know uh, so in this respect, uh, I feel the same. I feel like um, the songs kind of change and they uh, they mutate or they, they move into something different when you're playing by yourself because you're having to cover a few bases, you know. Uh, and I enjoy that. It's terrifying, but if I get a chance to practice it enough, hopefully I won't uh, look like a complete moron when I do it. But, uh, you know, uh, getting to see you in a, in a light that, that I don't get to see you. Thanks to Michael McDonald for being so honest and open. I apologize about the sound quality on that one. You know, right now in quarantine, when we're lucky, we get a really clear feed sometimes. You know, the way the Wi-Fi and the internet works and how we have to conduct these conversations, it's not ideal. But at some point when things get back to normal, we will also get back to a normal quality of sound. But if you got all the way through it, we appreciate it. I know the conversation was worth it. If you think so too, add a rating, a comment, and thank you so much for checking out this conversation on the interview series. Take it easy.